Holy Spirit, just um, as, as we prayed before the service, just ask that you would have your way. Um, I, I rely completely on you um, in, in this moment to teach. Um, would you enable me to teach? Would you enable all of us to learn um, from you, from your word? Um, we love that this, this word is uh, active. It's living. Uh, it can minister to us just as much as it could minister to the first century church. And so we ask that it would do exactly that by your inspiration, by your, um, by your grace. Would you reveal to us the truths that you wish to reveal. Um, anything that comes from me, would you allow it to be discarded? Um, but all that which comes from you, would you embed it into our heart um, and, and see you uh, to see Jesus more highly and lifted up? And so pray your blessing over this study um, as we take on chapter one for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. So Hebrews, as we said, it's a big book. It's, it's a challenging book. It, but it's, a, it's an amazing book. And Zach and I really did feel compelled. We get together like in November-ish and we plan out the whole year. And this was just, we, when we even came up with the idea of Hebrews um, last year, it was just big on our heart. I remember the moment we were just like, we, we couldn't wait to get into Hebrews. Um, it, was, it was a lot like that with Romans as well and even some of the smaller studies. But um, it's, a, it's an amazing book and um, there's a lot of meat there's a lot of meat. And, and if I'll say it right out the get-go, one of the major themes, one of the meta stories of this book is the superiority of Christ. And so this, this book seeks to, in that first century, just as much as today, it seeks to elevate Christ above a litany of things. And so that's going to be one of the common themes that you're going to see over and over is the elevation of Christ, the elevation of Christ. We don't know, and this is one of those funny things where people are always kind of debating, like, who wrote it? Who, what, was their inter- you know, what were the other books and how did it work into it? We don't know who penned the book, but we do know who authored it. The Bible tells us that all all books of the Bible were authored by the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, he used different men. He used different figures, characters, okay, to pen books of the Bible. But there is one author of all scripture, and that is God himself, so we can rest in that. Um, I don't know who penned it necessarily. Some people say Paul. Zach was like, oh, I like Barnabas, right? It doesn't really matter who penned it. If God wanted us to know, he would have revealed it, but we do know who authored it. Okay. And by the way, that's the answer when people ask about, well, man wrote Bible and he can do whatever he wants. Actually, and you can lovingly correct your friends, say actually the Bible itself declares that the Holy Spirit authored it, but man was used to pen it. Okay. It's sort of like dictation, by the way. Most authors today don't actually sit down and write their books. What they do is they dictate it and someone else types or someone else transcribes. All right. God worked in the same similar way in that he authored scripture and used men um, characters. He used people to then pen it. And so a little bit of their personality comes out, but it's never outside of God's authorship of the Bible. Um, it was written to Hebrews. Okay. I was a comm major, not that bright. Okay. But we, we, we understand that pretty quickly. All right. But in general, and this is what's really cool. It was generally written and you can see that the author deconstructs basically three categories of folks as it was being written to, but don't, don't, don't do this. Don't do like, oh, this was for them and I'm not one of them. I, I want to show you that this was generally written to three categories of, of, of Hebrews, of, of Jews, but in the exact same way it can minister to us today in 2016 
the first one that it was written to, and again, you see this as you see the author go through different points and pick out different places to make his emphases. That's how we kind of understand who they were writing to and the point they were getting across. The first one was Hebrews who were intellectually convinced that Jesus is God, and they were committed to that as well. They were intellectually, they got it, they understood it, and they were committed. They were in a life that displayed faith that Jesus was who he said he was. And so it was first and foremost, I would say, written to Hebrews who were intellectually convinced that Jesus is God, and they were committed to that truth. They were committed in faith to that truth. The second is Hebrews who were intellectually convinced Jesus was God, but they were not committed. This is where we start to see this this interesting divide because how many of us here, some of you may be dealing with this too. You've maybe either grown up or you've had a recent conversion and you get it intellectually, you understand it, you believe it. Like when someone says, is Jesus God? You're like, yes, but there's, there's, there's an unwillingness to commit when it comes to that expression of faith in your life. Your life maybe hasn't changed. And by the way, when you meet Jesus, everything changes. Paul was slaughtering Christians. Jesus showed up from heaven, smacked him around and everything changed for him. But some of us resist, myself included. I grew up a pastor's kid, always in the church. And I always understood it and I got it. And I went to Kowloon and I debated it and I could debate all the tenets. But my, my, my life looked no different, none, until much later in my life. Though I understood it, I wasn't committed to a life of faith. I wasn't committed when the Bible said something. I wasn't committed to put it in God's hands. I wasn't committed to that faith component. I got it up here, but I didn't get it here. And so first is the Hebrews who were intellectually convinced and committed to this truth of Jesus as God. The second one would be Hebrews who were intellectually convinced only that Jesus is God. They went to church. They went through it. They ran it. They, they were good religious people. But the, but the gospel crushes religion. It's not enough. It calls us to a higher, a, a higher view, a new horizon, as we saw in our study of Romans. And the third would be Hebrews who were neither convinced nor committed to Jesus. Didn't believe it. Certainly weren't committed to it. Maybe they believed he was just a guy just a teacher, just another prophet, some sort of guru, amazing spiritual teacher. We thought he just did yoga. I don't know. They just thought he's a good dude. His teachings are great, but he's not God. And by the way, Jesus's teachings alone don't allow for that position. His teachings alone don't allow to simply be a good teacher because he said he was God. He accepted worship as God. And if he's just a teacher who says he's God, that makes him a bad teacher. So Jesus is alone. His words alone don't allow for that position. But we see that the author is addressing those three categories. And again, don't look at them like, oh man, the Hebrews. Where are you in that? Are you intellectually convinced and in a lifestyle of faith? Good, there's still gonna be challenges in the book. Are you intellectually convinced? I get it. I got it. I get it's kind of, I, I, I see how it all works together. But are you branching out in faith? Are you living a life that displays that understanding? Does it go from your head into your heart? Or are you here tonight saying, I'm just going to try another church. I'm going to see. I need to figure out if it makes sense. I don't get it. I think he was a good teacher. I think he was a great guy. 
I love his quotes, right? Makes for great bumper stickers, okay? But the whole God thing, really? You believe that? Maybe some of us are there tonight too. And so through this, I pray that all three categories stick through this study because he's going to address places in your heart that Zach and I have know nothing about. But God knew ahead of time that, that he would be able to pierce into some of those areas and he would be able to begin a work in you through this book. And I said, one of the themes, certainly many themes, one of the themes is the superiority, the preeminence of Christ above all things. And we're going to take a look at generally one area he's superior in tonight in this first chapter. But the Jews of the day, let's take this in context. The Jews of the day and even Jews today have a problem. They have a problem. It has always been for the Jew. First century today, it has always been dangerous to approach God. Dangerous. I use that word very particularly because it says in Exodus thirty-three twenty, you cannot see my face. This is God speaking to his people. You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. That's dangerous, isn't it? No one shall see the face of God and live to tell about it. He says, death will come to those who see my face. It has always been dangerous for Jews to approach God. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And so once a year, on what is known as the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter what was known as the Holy of Holies. One guy, one day a year, in one room. And this was the room where the glory of God, his presence was manifest. This is where his glory, his Shekinah glory was on display. And one guy, once a year, could enter God's presence. One guy. The Jewish people could not see God. And one guy could enter his presence per year. And since nearness was not possible, God had to create a basis for a relationship between himself and his people. God has always sought after his people. He's never abandoned his people. This is not a God of Easternism or agnosticism or Gnosticism, which can't have anything to do with physical people. God has always sought relationship with his people. But as his word declares, no one can see him. So he must now create a relationship between him and his people. And since nearness was not possible, there had to be a basis for this relationship. And so God established what is known as the old covenant. The old covenant. And covenant means promise. It was a way in which God's people could interact with him. It was a way in which God's people could come before him. Though not see him, they could come before him. It was a special relationship 
It was the guidelines, the parameters for a special relationship God's people had with him. This is how the Jewish people can approach God. And so God established the old covenant, which gave the Jewish people special access to God through, through, you can't see me or you're going to die, but here's what can happen. You can have special access to me. You can approach me. We can have a relationship through adherence to the law. Even modern Jews will tell you that the law is very important. It is still every bit as relevant. If you reject what Jesus said, if you reject him as God, you are still then bound by the old covenant. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. And the Bible says one sin equates death. One sin separates you from God. God says, here's the parameters. You break any of these, something must die. And to break the law was sin. To not adhere to every law was sin. And it interfered with your access to God as a Jew. But God didn't leave it there. Since the Jewish people sinned constantly, right? We've said in the past, there's two buckets in all humanity, right? There's Jesus and sinners. Anyone hear Jesus? If you raise your hand, let's talk afterwards. Okay. Two buckets, Jesus and sinners. It's not, look at the Jews. No, two buckets. There's Jesus, look at Jesus, and then look at the rest of us. Have mercy. Two buckets. And since the Jews, just like us today, sinned constantly, God says, here is how you will still be able to approach me, though you continue to sin against me, though you continue to interfere with our relationship by desiring the things that you desire instead of desiring the things that I desire. So when that wall is built up of sin, God said, I will create a sacrificial system. Whereas you bring in the sin and something dies and blood is shed. Therefore, the wall is then removed and you have access to me again. Do you see that? Sin interferes with our access to God. And so for the Jewish people, God said, I know you sin constantly. In his foreknowledge, he knew. So he set up a sacrificial system. It says, the Old Testament says that blood must be shed for the remission of sins. Must. God can't go outside his own word. So when he says blood must be shed for every single sin of every single person in this room, in any room that has ever lived forever, every single sin must be atoned for by blood. No exceptions. One sin separates you from God. It interferes with access. So God creates a sacrificial system. The Levitical priesthood offered sacrifices to atone for sin, which removed the barrier so that access to God could resume. And they did so hour after hour, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, king after king, century After century, it says that blood ran from the temple constantly. Constantly. 
blood was being shed for the remission of sins. It says in Hebrews 10, which we'll get to, every priest stands ministering daily. And keep in mind, the, the priests themselves had to sacrifice for their own sins before they could even make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So the priests had to sacrifice an animal for the remission of their sins before they could even present the animal that the people had given them for the remission of their sins. Blood flowed constantly. And it says again, Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands, stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. But listen to this. So the people would come. He's, he's slaughtered an animal. He has, he has shed blood for his own sins. Now the priest receives the animal from the people. They would confess their sin. He would take it to the altar. He would slaughter that animal. There would be a line down the street. Imagine if you had to bring in an animal for everything you've done today alone. Today alone. How many of you didn't make it past 8 a.m.? That's college, sorry. 12 when you woke up, right? <laughs> Every day he would come to the altar, slaughter. This was a messy job. This was not cute. This wasn't like nice office. I get to be the pastor. I got lots of books. No, they had knives and a bloody altar back then. This is the furthest thing from like Joel Osteen, right? Like shiny Mercedes. These guys slaughtered animals for a living. The butchers had nothing on them. Because every time they brought an animal, it was for the sins to be atoned for. But it says this. It says, every priest stands ministering daily, back and forth, 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 back and forth. They would tag their buddy in. He'd come back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And it says this, which can never take away sins. What? See, the bloodshed in the Old Testament could cover sin but it could never remove it. Blood in the Old Testament could cover sin per God's requirements for sure, but it could never take away sin. And so daily back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This was the old covenant. This was how God's people received special access to him was to abide by the fact that sin must be atoned for with the shedding of blood though it could never take away the sin. Suffice it to say, Israel longed for, the Jewish people longed for, the Hebrews longed for a high priest who could take it away. That there would be no more slaughtering that there would be no more daily sacrifices which could cover sin, but could never truly cleanse them of it. And so sinful mankind needed a perfect priest who could make one final, eternal sacrifice and open that access to God once and for all. That God's people would have unfettered access to him 
through the offering of one great high perfect priest making one perfect sacrifice. It says in Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, listen. By that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It says once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily. That's what we just read. And offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It can cover it, but it can't get rid of it. It's like having a stain on your shirt and then pouring something onto it so you can't see the original stain. But what do you have there? You have a much bigger one now. I can't see it. It's been covered. But that stain was not removed from my shirt. Offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But it says this man, that's a capital M, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, every single sin, your entire life, every person you know, every person who has ever lived, every sin hourly, daily, Yearly, decade by decade, century after century, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history, one sacrifice forever. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And as the priests, what in the Old Testament, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, it says this priest, Jesus, sat down. He sat down says he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down. A position of rest, a, compi- uh, 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 a position of completion. He sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. See, here's what happens. Some of you are like, but I don't, or I do continue to sin. I'm a Christian. I, I, I had, I had my, my, my conversion. I, I realized I put my faith in Jesus and I continue to sin. So what about that? He says he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So God doesn't have a goal of perfection for you. He says you're perfect in this process of sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. God now sees you as perfect, though you are in a process, you haven't hit a goal. Does that make sense? doesn't mean you stop trying by the grace of God. He's going to enable you. He's going he's to empower you. You'll never be sinless, but you will sin less. You're in a process of sanctification. And God says, when you're in that process, though you're still sinning, we're like, but I still sin, I still sin. God says, but you're in that process, which means you're in me. And in me, I see you as perfect. That's how you can be perfect, though still yet a sinner. It doesn't, it doesn't reduce our sin in any way. It's cosmic treason every single time. But you need to know that God sees you as perfect if you're in that process of sanctification. If you're running toward Jesus, becoming more and more like him every day, you subscribe to the title Christian, right? Which means little Christ. How's that working out for you? Every day does your life look a little bit more like his? 
that means that you're in that process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is indwells in you and now he is cleansing you and purifying you and sanctifying you and you're running toward Jesus. You're stumbling and getting all bloody on the way, for sure. My little four-year-old today coming around the corner right back here, just bam, ate it. Just, he had his jamba juice and everything and he's down, he's bloody. He gets, he's cut his jeans. He's a mess. And we're doing the same thing, but God says, if you're on that process, if you're in that process, you're in me, I see you as perfect. And so he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And in doing so, now Jesus has become the mediator. He's become the great high priest, which we will see a few times in this book. Now he mediates a better covenant, a better promise. And by the way, you don't have to feel bad about saying that. I joke, but I'm serious. I wake up every day. I'm like, glad I'm not in the Old Testament. Yes, I want to be on this side of the cross. Anyone? I got nothing against goats. And, and I like bacon, okay? So I, I, I got nothing, I've got nothing wrong. It says it right here. It says, but now in Hebrews 8, 6, and we'll get to that in seven weeks. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He says, what the priest did was great. It was ordained. It was sanctified. Look, he, God himself set that up. He says, that wasn't bad, but you know what's better? You know what's a better ministry than going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and covering sin but never actually removing it? You know what's a better ministry? He says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. I love that the New Testament is like, we're better than the old. This is a better time to be God's people. Why are we still frowning, right? Like, this is better than the Old Testament. This is a better promise. It's a better covenant. Why? Because one sacrifice for eternity makes us perfect in a process. One time, it's a better priest. It's a more superior priest. It's a higher sacrifice. It's a better ministry. He says that he's now the mediator of a better covenant. He's now mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. This is better. This unfettered access through one sacrifice is better than daily slaughtering of animals for the covering of sin. This is better. Yay. Right? This is intense, but you know, it's better. You can smile. This is better. Jesus is the better perfect priest who made a better, perfect sacrifice forever. So let me stop right now. In that moment, all of us, we drug a lot of crap here tonight. A lot of crap. And it hurts us and it hurts God. But you need to know that you are under the covering. Those who are in Christ are under the cover of a better promise, which is you have unfettered access to the creator of the universe unfettered access as God's people to a God so high up yet willing to go so far down. We now are under the cover of a better promise, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. Jesus is the perfect priest who made a perfect sacrifice I've got written down all their lives, the Jewish people had been looking for a perfect priest and a perfect final sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says he came. 
the greatest high priest of eternity came. He performed one final eternal sacrifice for all sin, for all time. He came and his name was Jesus Christ. So there was the old covenant, but now there's the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, and whoever penned it is writing to folks that are, that are part of this transition from the old into the new. The religion required to access God has not been destroyed, but it's been fulfilled. The Old Testament sacrifice and slaughter was always intended to point to the coming sacrifice and slaughter that Jesus performed on the cross. It's not that that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that we can't learn anything. What it means is that always meant something. And now we know this side of full revelation. We know what that sacrificial system was intended to point to. And that's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the Hebrews are transitioning from the old into the new and it's tough. Even as Christians, right? A lot of us start off as just, let's be honest, moralists. Man, if I submit to this whole Christian thing, I just have to be better. And then at some point I pray, a good preacher came up to you and says, you can't be better. Jesus is better. You're like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Thought I was supposed to be better. Jesus is better. It's Jesus and sinners. Which one am I in? Not Jesus. But what you've been is you've been perfected in a process of sanctification. And so now when God looks at you, you're like, wait a minute, the two buckets, explain that. When you take off your robe of wickedness and you put on his robe of righteousness, when God sees you, he doesn't see you anymore. I'm sorry to tell you, millennials. Okay, right? I'm a millennial too by like a few months, so I'm making fun of myself. What he sees is he sees the work of Jesus. So when God looks at you in all your sin, but you've cloaked yourself in the righteousness of Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Jesus' sacrifice. He says, you're good. That's how it works. And so, but how many of us are still struggling between moralism? I should be better. If I'm not being better, then am I really saved? We're transitioning into this gospel, a gospel of grace, where Jesus has completed everything and finished everything. Doesn't mean there's not a call in our life now by any means. But some of us are still coming out of moralism. And I pray headed into this understanding of the gospel. And some of you are like, we haven't even started the chapter yet. How long is this going to take? And so what's going to happen here is God's going to lay out Jesus' superiority in relation to one thing in specific in this chapter. So let's go. Hebrews 1, it says, God, you got to love a book that starts with God. Thank goodness it didn't start with, hey, you. <laughs> hey, you. What? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time, passed to the Father's, by the prophets. Now it's not so much that Jesus brought a message. It's that Jesus now is the message. You have to hear that before we start. It's not that Jesus is simply another link in a prophetic chain. Though, though we know that the prophets were pointing forward to the perfect capital P prophet who would come, but it's not so much that Jesus simply delivered a message. It's that Jesus embodied a message. That's why we call him the word. Jesus didn't simply hand off a new message. He came, he exemplified, he perfected, he fulfilled, he completed. He was God's message. 
And all the prophecy would lead up to a higher message, a better message, a more superior message. And Jesus shows up. And so he says, so God who spoke in various times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, did you know it's been the last days since the Bible was written? Some of you are like, you, you YouTube that stuff, like when is the last days? Right now, actually. Is it tomorrow? No, we've been in the last days since Jesus left. You didn't know that. People are like, it's just taking forever, right? People only say that after they're saved. You know, I'm saved now. Let's go finish this thing. Revelation, come on, right? I did too. It's like, oh shoot, I'm saved. I'm, I'm good. Let's be done with this, right? No one ever says that before they're, before they're saved. It's been the end times. Don't worry about it. That freaks people out. Whole churches split and debates and all that sort of stuff. When are the ends? This is the end times, okay? We're in the end times. Everyone got it? We're in the end times, okay? That doesn't, I don't, I'm gonna YouTube it tonight. We'll see, all right? <laughs> it says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now what he's gonna do is he's gonna go into a sevenfold description of Jesus, what he's just going to do is, I'll tell you right now, he's going to set up Jesus as superior to angels. He's got to start there. He's got to start with that spiritual realm. Then he's going to get to the physical realm. We're going to get to Moses. We're going to get to all these other things. But he has to set up Jesus as superior to angels. So he's going to go through a sevenfold description of the son that begins to, again, elevate Jesus above all. And it starts by saying, the heir of all things. It says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. This is befitting Jesus's status. It says in Colossians 1.15, that he is the firstborn over all creation. And the firstborn gets the inheritance. And so Jesus is the heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. It says this in Colossians 1.16. This is the very next verse. This, by the way, Colossians 15, 1, 15 and 16 is arguably my favorite passage. It says, for by him, all things were created that were in heaven and are on earth. Now he's echoing Genesis 1 where it says, what? What are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, God created What? Heavens and the earth. How many of you, like myself, at one point in your head put God in heaven when he created everything? Heaven didn't even exist. Like what did exist? Nothing. There was just God. I don't get it. Me neither. Can't wait to ask. <laughs> How'd you do that whole thing, Jesus? <laughs> right? What was that like? Right? Perfect in a triune God, had community, right? He had his homies. Okay, he didn't create us for fellowship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God. There was absolutely nothing. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the spiritual realm and he creates the physical realm. We'll go into that a little bit deeper. But it says, for by him, all things were created. Again, this is Colossians 1.16. That are in heaven and are on earth. All things were created through him and for him. I've done this a lot. I'm gonna keep doing it probably till I'm dead. When you read Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. And then mountains happened and light and sun and fish and weird things, right? And creepy things and all. It says that. Did you know that it was Jesus who actually created those things? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Equally God, yet with separate roles. Holy Spirit didn't die on a cross for your sins. God the Father can't even be seen. Jesus came, was sent by the Father. Then he sent the Holy Spirit equal as God, yet with separate roles. It says, in the beginning, God created. And when he created 
when he just said it. That's why we call Jesus the word. When he just said, let the land separate from the seas, Jesus went out and actually did it. It's no surprise he came as a carpenter. He's been building since the beginning. So all things were created by him, through him, and ultimately for him. And so when it says that he made the world's That's what the author is referring to. Verse three says, who being the brightness of his glory. The brightness in Greek denotes the radiance shining forth from a source of light. How many of you have seen the sun? Raise your hand. Really? We've never seen the sun. We've only seen the rays that come from it. You can never see the father, but you can see the ray that comes from it. Jesus is the brightness. He is the ray that came down and is the express manifestation. He's the incarnation of the father who cannot be seen. So people see in the Old Testament where he looked up and they saw the face of God. Guess who that was in the Old Testament? Jesus like, hey, I'll be there soon. Can't see the father, can't see the son, but you can see the rays and you can see Jesus. And so he is the brightness of his glory. Jesus, I, I've got this from Pastor David Guzik. He said, Jesus is the beam of God's glory. We have never seen the sun. Some of you thought that was my thing. I totally ripped it. And so he says, we have never seen the sun, only the rays of its light as they come to us. Even so, we have never seen the father, but we have seen him through the quote rays of the sun. So it says that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. In the original language, the express image is like a stamp it means this is, this is the, the stamp of who I am. And so God the Father sends the Son and he puts him into human history. And he says, you will know me when you see him. If you have questions about my nature, my character, look to him and he will give you the answer. And so God stamps human history with Jesus Christ himself so that we can know God. And all the moral law of the Old Testament, which pointed forward to a perfect and holy God, when Jesus shows up, he says, see, he's perfect and he's holy as I am perfect and I am holy and I am loving and merciful and gracious. And so he is this express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The idea is not passively holding something up, but it's actively sustaining. Everyone take a deep breath for me. Let it out. Some of you are rebellious. You're like, no, I just breathed a few seconds ago. I don't need to, right? Take another deep breath. The Bible tells us that Jesus is holding all things together. We were allowed to do that because Jesus hasn't flinched. You say, it's not personal God. Remind me how you keep your heart beating at night. Try that tonight. Go to sleep and just keep your heart beating on your own. What causes you to breathe? My chest, my heart, I don't know. He is sustaining all things. If Jesus flinches, the whole thing collides. The whole thing implodes. It says he is the, up, he is the upholder. He upholds all things, actively sustaining all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Who knows what purge means? It's not rocket science. Is it to cover? He removes it actually removes it. Having purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better, verse four, than the angels. 
having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus is not created, he is creator. And real fast, we're about to launch into, and we'll probably go a little rapid fire here, is Jesus exalted above the angels, but you need to know where angels came from. In the beginning, God created something from nothing. It says he created the heavens and the earth. He created a spiritual realm and a physical realm. There are two realms. It's not weird. This isn't stranger things with people upside down or anything like that, okay? Is that show not cool for young people? I love that show because it's all 80s. Never mind. I'm just going to keep going. Stop looking at me like that. Jeez. Okay, so spiritual realm and physical realm. That went off like a lead balloon. All right, so heavens, the earth, spiritual realm, physical realm. In the spiritual realm, he created angels. In the physical realm, he created humans. Now the Bible tells us that in this angelic rank, there was one who said, I will be like God. His name was Lucifer. He was, by the way, amazing, magnificent. I believe he was a worship leader, right? Yeah, he was. So you got to watch out for those guys, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> okay. So within this angelic rank, there was one who said, I will be like the most high. And he gathered a third of the angelic army the angelic ranks, a third, the Bible tells us angels are innumerable. So he grabbed a third of an innumerable number. In mathematical terms, it's called a lot. Okay. And they waged rebellion against God. No surprise, pick a fight with God. Guess what happens? You lose and get kicked out. They were cast out. They were stricken. Their fate was sealed. The Bible tells us that they cannot repent. In that moment, that third of an innumerable bottle of angels, and by the way, angels are amazing. They're not cute. They're not like the cartoons. They are warriors. They are messengers. They are wise. They are holy. It says they are powerful. They are strong. They're smarter than us. They're more set apart than us. They're stronger than us. Amazing, amazing creatures, but created. Created. And a third of those rebelled against God got kicked out and that's when they became demons. And now demons run amok knowing that their eternity has been sealed. They cannot repent. There's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal is backed into a corner. And now they lash out and they simply want as many of us as possible. And so demons are on the hunt, fallen angels. And by the way, the, the, the battlefield does not consist of Satan and Jesus. I don't know if you know this. The battlefield does not consist of a war between Satan and Jesus. The war is between Satan and arguably the archangel Michael, who is his opposing equal. Jesus is king above the whole battlefield. So Jesus, though he wars with Satan, and he certainly did in his public ministry, he is not the opposing equal of Satan. Satan is not Jesus' opposing equal. He is a created angel that fell from heaven and now makes war on a one-to-one -one basis, probably with the archangel Michael, who is his opposing equal. And now what's going to happen in this chapter is that the author is going to say, by the way, as intense and as awesome as that is, Jesus is better. He's bigger, he's higher than even the angels. And he'll transfer into the physical realm. We'll talk about Moses and other things. But he starts with the spiritual realm. He says, you need to know who leads, who is at the top of the spiritual realm. You need to know who created the spiritual realm. And so it's not enough to simply be spiritual, by the way. You hear this a lot, especially in college, don't you? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Cool, which side are you on? 
People are like, what do you mean? I'm on the spiritual side. I know, but which side? I just like to tap in. It's dangerous. If you don't know which side you're tapping into, there's two sides of the spiritual realm. It's not enough to just be spiritual. Okay? There's two warring factions in the spiritual side. And so as we're going to launch in, it's going to say, if, you, if you've got the New King James Version, the headline is, Son Exalted Above Angels. The rest of Hebrews 1, he's going to prove by Scripture that Jesus is superior to angels. We'll rapid fire these five. Here's five reasons that this is important. One, because we often understand things when they are set in contrast to other things. Have you noticed that? It's a good teaching technique. If you're trying to describe one thing, a lot of times you set it up in contrast to the opposite, right? Right? No? Yeah? It's a teaching technique. Two, because the old covenant came by the hands of angels to Moses, but a better covenant came by a better being, Jesus. It might've been easy for the first century church to believe that this was just another message delivered by men. And so in order to be superior to even the messages of the Old Testament, God sent himself, he sent his son to deliver a more superior message, superior even to the angelic ranks. Three, because there's a dangerous, there was a dangerous tendency to worship angels developing in the early church. We see that in Colossians 2, Galatians 1. I like this one. Number four, because there was heretical idea that Jesus himself was an angel, a concept which degrades his glory and supremacy. The Mormons teach that Jesus was the first born, first created spirit child in heaven. Not necessarily, they don't draw the immediate connection to an angel, but yeah, he was the first created spirit being and he was the brother of Satan. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is actually the incarnation of the archangel Michael. So the archangel actually came to earth and when he was born, he became Jesus These sort of tendencies to equate Jesus to the angelic realm or the spirit realm as just a created being still exists today, not just in the first century church. Jesus is above the spirit realm. He created the spirit realm. He is not an angel. He is not a spirit born brother to Satan. And number five, because understanding how Jesus is better than the angel helps us understand how he is better than any of the other competitors that we may have in our life. He's better than our relationships. He's better than our marriages. He's better than our friendships. He's better than our career. He's better than our pride, our ego. He's better than all these things, the things that compete for the throne in your heart. Jesus is higher. If he's higher than the angels, of course he's higher than your Instagram feed. Of course. And so he says this. We're gonna rapid fire through this. I've said that three times, but you're like, you still haven't done it. We're on verse five. For to which of the angels, this is rhetoric, by the way, right? So to which of the angels has God ever said, you are my son? Now in Job, he calls angels sons of God, but no individual angel is given the title son. And he doesn't get a cool capital S, but like Jesus does. And so son, there's one reference. We're like, oh, here come the sons of God to present to him. But Jesus is the only individual ever to be called his son. And so he is higher than the angels. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Begotten is the meaning in the original language, the equality of substance, the essential nature of the father. He says, this is my nature. This is God on earth. This is God's actual physical essence. Jesus This is everything that God is in physical form. That's Jesus. He says, today I have begotten you. Again, it's rhetorical. Who of of the angels? The answer is none of them. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. See, Jesus accepts worship from angels. Why? Because he is above them. He is superior. He created them. And so they worship him. Says that he sits on the right hand of the God, uh, the right hand of the father. Angels don't even have a seat near that throne. They're on their faces. By the way, do you know how it's going to look? Angels are going to be shoulder to shoulder with us in heaven. You look at him, you're like, you're, you're pretty, you're taller than I thought you'd be. Actually, and the wings are pretty gnarly. He's like, hey, pfft, focus. Like, Sorry. They're going to be on their faces, on their knees with us facing Jesus, not accepting. Not accepting. Revelation 5, we see that the angels are worshiping Jesus. Revelation 19, 10, it says this, and I, this is John, and I fell at his feet to worship him. John saw an angel. So magnificent, so amazing. Grandpa gets down and begins to worship him. And the angel said to me, see that you do not do that. Angel's like, knock it off, grandpa. He says this, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Is the spirit of prophecy. And so he says in verse six, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse seven, and of all the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Verse 10, it says, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. See, he's the creator. And the heavens are the work of your hands. And they will perish, but you will remain. You see, he's self-existent. He's outside the realms that he even created. They will perish, you will remain. And they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. You see, he's sovereign. He's outside of that. But you are the same. See, he's immutable. He's unchanging. He's a description of an eternal God, not a mere angel. It says, in your years will not fail. He is eternal. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? None, by the way, none. No angel sits at the right hand of God. Jesus does. Why? Because he is God. It says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Unlike the angels who are ministering to us, as it says, we'll read last verse, it says, and they, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the, by the way, angels work for us. Don't get all big headed, but angels are working on our behalf. Okay. It says, they go forth, minister for those who will inherit salvation. Unlike the angels who are ministering to us and worshiping Jesus, Jesus sits having completed his priestly work until his enemies will be made his footstool. Jesus will kick his feet up on the back of those who reject him. It's not a Jesus we like to talk about. We'd rather have kumbaya hippie Jesus around a campfire and s'mores. But Jesus, you need to know in the end, loving and merciful and gracious and kind, in the end, Jesus will say enough is enough. And he will make his enemies his footstool. It says he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Why? It is the ultimate seat of royalty. 
It is the seat of a perfect great high priest above the angelic realm, above the physical realm. And we have communion every Sunday night because it doesn't allow Zach and I to go one week without wrapping it back to the sacrifice that Jesus made. The priests went daily back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And some of us do the same thing and do the same thing. And we get into a cycle of religiosity where we weren't good, so we need to be better. And we've missteps, so we need to be better. And Jesus says, I came once as a perfect priest to fulfill all the priests that had come before me. And I completed one sacrifice. So we don't believe that this is the physical body of Jesus. We don't believe that this is the physical blood of Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient once. We don't re-sacrifice him every Sunday, as some traditions teach, that this becomes the physical body and the physical blood. It's not necessary. It was done once for sin for all time. And so communion is open now as the band comes up. Communion is open to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus to say, I don't want to simply try to cover my sin. I want someone to remove it. And Jesus says, I'm here. And so we're going to pray and then we're going to go into a time of worship because the great high priest came and was sacrificed once and for all for all that we have done. Amen? Let's pray, Jesus. Pray that you again, would you be glorified and lifted up in the hearts of your children. So thankful for a better promise. So thankful for a better covenant. So thankful that in you, you alone, by faith, we have unfettered access to God. There is nothing we need to do to have access to you. Jesus has already done it. And so I pray as we go into this time of worship that we would realize one thing, that this great high priest is still alive. That every other religious leader in human history has a grave with bones in it and they can't find yours. Jesus, you're in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God with legions of angels bowing before you. You are that high and yet you came so low to perform that work. And so would you, that high, minister via the Holy Spirit in the deepest, darkest places of our hearts right now. A God that big and yet that personal is the only God that can save. And so we sing to a risen King, Jesus, you can actually hear us. You can hear us. And the Bible says that our praises are like a fragrance in heaven. And I praise that we would smell up the joint tonight. And so Jesus, behind lifted up as we sing to you, a risen king, a perfect priest, making one sacrifice for all. Amen.